Throughout the Middle Ages, uh, the church hierarchy emphasized teaching all the lay people the seven deadly sins and the seven heavenly virtues. Um, and this is still a Roman Catholic ideal. So why would a Protestant church like Trinity teach on something like this? One of the reasons why, frankly, is that these sins, as I said earlier, I mean, they apply, every sin applies to each of us in some form or way. And I think it's accurate to say like, we really don't get how wonderful a Savior Jesus is unless we actually see our sin for what it is. The more that we see our sinfulness, the greater Jesus is to us. So that's why we're spending these four weeks looking at the seven deadly sins. And so when we're, the, we're in the third week and we're looking at lust and wrath. But I'm most excited what we're doing in two weeks. In two weeks, we start an eight-week series on grace, how grace changes everything. It's the heartbeat of Trinity's DNA. And it's also, in two weeks, the week that we start our 9 a.m. Um, classes. We're not starting classes. We're having a big breakfast together, a potluck breakfast. So if you're interested, come on out. So with nothing else to say, friends, let's look at God's Word from 1 John 2. And if you're willing and able, I would ask you to stand, please. Hear now God's Word. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. About six years ago, at a deserted three-way stop in a town on the East Coast, a man sits in his vehicle windows down, not moving, and he's playing an augmented reality game 
You know, where your location determines the game that you're playing. And that's when things go wrong. A man of about 70 approaches the vehicle yelling obscenities about how dangerous it is to text and to drive, about how reckless younger drivers are nowadays. And the yelling turns to screaming. And the words begin to carry even more violence. The driver of the car responds in a frenzy. The two men are screaming at each other about 18 inches out the open window. And then the driver begins to open the door of his car. And out of nowhere, the older man retreats quickly across the crosswalk. The other man gets out of the car and begins to follow him. But in God's providence, was stopped. Not by any external force that realizes that this shouldn't happen. The driver of the car was me. I was playing a game. If you're interested, the game is called Ingress. Um, and I was at a deserted stop sign. And I was on my phone, and the car was not moving. My foot was on the brake. And a man begins yelling. And we have a screaming match through the open window of the car. And I open the door. And he goes away. Probably because so, probably because I'm really muscled up. <laughs> Some of you laughed too hard at that, okay? <laughs> and I began to follow him, and I did. I got to the front of the car, and I went, what am I doing? I was happy. I was playing a game. And that went to following a guy out the car screaming at him. I don't know what I was going to do. I didn't wake up that morning and think, I want to beat up a 70-year-old. There's not many of us that do that. And I'm a Christian. And by the way, I was a pastor at the time. And it's such a strange thing how that happened so quickly. Friends, that's why we're studying this series. And today, we're looking at lust, and I'm going to call it wrath. Depending upon what sort of list you look at for the English versions, lust and wrath. And I think wrath really describes it in a way that anger does not. So what we're going to do this morning is the same thing that we've done the last couple of Sundays, the point of this is not to say, look, stop being lustful. Stop being wrathful. Um, it's not, hey, stop following older men as if you're going to beat them up. That's not it. The three questions that we want to answer for both of these sins is this. How and why does this sin work? How does it get its grip on us. Two, what does this sin produce? What does it produce? 
uh, in us. And third, how does the gospel address this sin? Okay, how and why does it work? What does the sin produce? And three, how does the gospel address this sin? So let's begin with lust. Our passage from 1 John mentions this at the very end. In verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. I think what John is showing us here, and if you look at the way that this word is used, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, what you see is that lust, most of the time we think of it in a sexual way, it is much more than that. It is primarily that, but it is much more than that. The word is epithumia, or epithumia, depending upon whether it's a noun or a verb. If you look at what the lexicons say, it's, they say it's desire, yearning, craving. Um, Thayer's Greek lexicon says, says that it's this, desire for what is forbidden. And even the word itself, it's not just desire, it's like super desire. Desire for what is forbidden, cravings. And I think when we hear lust, maybe we go back to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, when Jesus says, he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he later goes on and says, It's better for you to gouge out an eye than to participate in lust. So how, how and why does it work? How does, this, how does lust work within us if you look at the way that Scripture talks about it, it's this. It's that we are not content with what God has given us in the here and now. Lust is a response to our lack of contentment with what God has given us in the here and now. We see this, actually, in 1 Timothy 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Um, in lust, here's what we're saying. Here's what we're saying. We're saying, God, what you have given me is not enough. Or it's, God, what you have given me is, is not good for me now. I know better what's good for me now. And I'm not content with what you have given me. So the desire within us stirs that maybe God's not good to me. I'm not content in what he's given me now. So what are some examples of this? What does this look like? Um, super easy on this one. You know, with the dawn of the internet, um, you're able to get to particular websites from anywhere on earth. And, you know, having been in college ministry for nine years, I saw this frequently. And for those of you who, who may not know, this is not, this is not like a male problem. It is ubiquitous between men and women. And parents, especially I would say of teenagers, you have to be having the discussion. You have to be having the discussion about that. But it also works not on the internet too, right? I mean, with a coworker, with a waiter or a waitress. 
I mean, th- there's these little bitty things. I'm not talking about, you understand, I'm not talking about habitual. It's just the little things here and now. And I wonder, I wonder what does that produce in us? A heart that's continually lusting or has a, let's say, a habit of it, what does that produce? One of the things that it produces is a lack of thankfulness. Like if you're really content in what you have, you're super thankful for it. Um, If I can share an example from my son, one of the things I love about him is at night we pray together and he prays. And in his prayers, he thanks God for lots of things. Shall I give you an example? Jesus, thank you for a good bed. And thank you that my bed doesn't collapse. That's nice. And oh, thank you for a good door. And a good door that makes a noise. Oh, thank you for a good handle to the door that makes a noise whenever it opens. That way I know if an intruder is coming in. You know, thank you for... I mean, it just it goes on and on. And what, that's, what that says to me is one of two things. Either one, he doesn't know what he's really doing, which I don't think that's it. Or two, he's actually content. Like, he's actually thankful for doorknobs. I don't know that I've ever thanked Jesus for a doorknob until my son started saying that. Lust makes us not content where we are. And it steals from us a thankful heart for what we do have. I mean, like a spouse. Or if you're single, I mean, where you are right now. I mean, the ability to not be, I'm going to say this carefully, but not be burdened by a family. I mean, a family is a joy, but my goodness, those of you who have kids, those of you who are just married, a marriage takes time. Kids take time. If you're single, you have so much free time to, to use for, for Jesus, yourself, others. It's a beautiful thing. What else is less produced in us? You know, I think this one's a little more insidious, but it produces long-term discontentment. Long-term discontentment. I've never seen... I've never seen a marriage end in an affair in which the offending party was not long-term discontent. That stuff grows over time. And this may not necessarily be related only to lust, But lust is a good factor in us talking about long-term discontentment. Let's say you're lusting after a person. You don't feel content in your heart. The next day, same thing. Next day, same thing. Your thankfulness has been stolen for whatever stage in life you are, and it's continuing, continuing, continuing. And then long-term, you're absolutely discontent with where you are where God has put you presently. And that doesn't, that doesn't happen in two days. It happens over a long, long period. 
So friends, we need to watch our hearts in this. Um, Lust convinces us that because God isn't providing for us our desires in the here and now, that he's not good to us. It's a lie. Each of these sins operate on a lie. Okay? You know, we'll transition from lust to wrath. Like, lust... Lust says, you know, I'm not content with what I have, so I'm yearning and searching for more. Wrath is very similar, because wrath says, I'm not content with what I have, and don't think just mere possessions. Think about, I'm not content with my circumstances, and so I'm reacting out of it. Lust is, I'm not content, so I yearn. Wrath is I'm not content, so I react out of it. And for both, for both, both operate on this premise that what you really want, you, you can't have. One ends in yearning and the other ends in rage, really and truly. Let's take a look at wrath. Um, Matthew 5, maybe you think about the Sermon on the Mount again. Hear what Jesus says. He says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Whew. That's a big deal. You fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Friends, that's, that's a serious thing. Jesus sees anger in a very serious light. Um, how does it work? How does wrath and anger work within us? I think there's a lot of, before that, let me, let me say this, there's a lot of different ways that this can happen, right? Don't think in your head Anger equals like an exploder, right? You have different types of, of anger, different, different ways that people do it. Some of us are exploders, okay? That, that's been my tendency, um, as evidenced by the previous story that I told you. Some of us are seethers. You don't really say anything about it, but you just stew on it until that meat is just falling off the bone and you savor that anger. There's lots of ways that we could be angry. So don't think, oh, I'm not an exploder, so I'm good. No, because Jesus' words um, and John's words that we have say, you've got a real problem. You've got a real problem if you're an angry person. So how does it work within us? Why are we angry? Why... Why are we angry? Um, deep down in our sinful natures lurks the desire for us to be, to be God. To have all of life happen in such a way that I would do this this way if I were God, right? It is our idolatrous desire for control. Okay, next week, we're looking at the last sin, pride. 
And pride is our sin in which we know better than God. Wrath or anger is our sin in which we, we can do better than God. So what are some examples? Let me show you how this works. Um, I'll use the traffic example because we've used this before. Some of us get angry in traffic. I'm one of those people. Um, I lived in Dallas for four years and then lived on the East Coast, just outside of Jersey, for nine years. That does not make you a patient driver, okay? Um, so in, in the car is, according to my wife, is the most angry I ever am. That, quote, the only time you're volatile is when you're in the car, okay? So what does that look like? I mean, whether saying, you fool, or whatever it may be, get them in the car, driving angry, pointing, whatever it may be, okay? Um, what am I trying to do in that? I'm trying to be God. Because if God were good and he knew what he was doing, these people would know how to drive better, right? Um, what about if you're a student and you're super angry you studied and studied and studied, and you made a B on an essay that you thought was really awesome. And your parents thought it was awesome, maybe. But you spent a lot of time on this. And an essay, you know, it can be subjective, and your teacher gives you a B, and you are upset. If God knew what he was doing, He'd have a professor in here who recognized my awesomeness and would give me an A. That's what's behind it. Um, yeah, guys, this is like the checkout line. I mean, we could go on and on with examples. Someone gets in the express line and they've got, I mean, this happens all the time. They've got 42 tiny toys and they're having to scan each one. And you're angry. You're angry at them, probably angry at yourself for getting behind them because you know how it is in the checkout line. Like Once you commit, you're committed. It's almost like a marriage because then you see the other checkout lines like filling up, right? So you, and then it takes a while, and you're angry at this person. Why are they in the express line if they're doing this? Oh, what's behind it? If God knew what he were doing, he would make people that aren't so dumb as to get in the express line. That's what's going on. You want to be God. You want to be, almost like in a video game, take this person, pick them up, move them out of your way so that you can check out. But this kind of the sin, the heart behind that, friends, it's insidious. It is our desire to be God. And next week we're going to look at Genesis 3 to see that is what's going on here behind our anger. Get angry at the kids for destroying something, because that's what kids do. Or make it a mess. My home would be clean if there were no children in it. You get mad about that. If God gave me, if he knew what he was doing, he'd give me a child that knows how to clean up after himself, to be more autonomous, independent, yada, yada. Did y'all see, see this? Lurking behind our anger actually is a desire for us to want to be God. Here's the funny thing. 
what it produces in us is really detrimental. I had a pastor in college tell me one time, it was very memorable at the moment, he said, Scott, there are two types of elderly people. Christians and angry people. Those who are angry and Christians. On the, in the um, part of the bulletin that has the preparation for worship, Frederick Buechner said this. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Do you see that about anger? Anger changes nothing in reality. It changes nothing in reality. You're mad at the person in front of you at the checkout line. Does your anger make them move faster? No. You're angry at the other drivers. Does that make them better drivers? No. You're angry at your kids. Does that, does that magically make them clean up their messes and not argue and fight? No. You're angry at your spouse. Does that make your spouse a different person? No. So you have this intense, I would say, emotion and sin in these different areas, and they have no landing points. Where do they land? They got to land somewhere. They're actually like a boomerang. They land on you, the one bearing the brunt of your anger is you. Your anger lands somewhere. And that's what's behind the Buchner quote. Anger. You're eating it up and eating it up, but what you're eating up is yourself. What you're eating up is yourself. And Christians, we're not, we're not supposed to be angry people. Um, and it, it really is this. Anger, especially for the exploders, it's like it's our release valve to express our displeasure in God's reality. Right? This is whatever this is, wherever you are, whether it's in this gym or you're getting gas at QT or you're in Walmart or whatever it may be, anger is the release valve to express, I am very upset at your reality, God. That's exactly what it is. Friends, we all have touches of all these sins of lust. And anger. How does the gospel address these? Because, let me say this, and I've said it the last two weeks and I'll say it again. You will not be changed to be a less, into a less lustful and a less angry person by me standing up here telling you, stop being lustful, stop being angry. The power of the gospel is not a set of rules. It's by seeing Jesus clearly and embracing in him is where real change comes in. Just as I mentioned last week, the very, we have the Ten Commandments. 
right before the Ten Commandments, God said, I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am God. Look what I've already done for you. And all of the epistles in the New Testament start with, you have been ransomed. You have been redeemed. You have been given the spirit that says, Abba, Father, you are now a child. Now, out of that, obey. Because God has already worked in you. So how does the gospel address lust and wrath? Um, lust, to recap, it's a yearning for what is forbidden. It's our, it's our over-desire for what doesn't please God. But Jesus himself yearned for what pleased God. It's not that just, just that Jesus didn't sin. He sought out and did the very thing that God the Father wanted. This is not his passive obedience on the cross, his active obedience to obey the law to the very letter. And then what does he do? He offers his obedience to sinners. I mean, the, the 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin... Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. He was obedient to the point of death and then turns around and offers his obedience to you. And what do you have to do to get it? Just believe. That's it. Just believe. Now, what about wrath? You know, wrath is, is our sinful reaction to not getting in our way, to us not being God. Well, in the garden, when God created the whole thing, in the garden, he wanted a face-to-face -face relationship. But we spurned that. We did. We disobeyed. We sought pleasure and life and wisdom elsewhere. What was God's response, friends? God could have, at that point, taken the whole universe and said, done with it. What was his response? Well, he decided that the best way to fix this was not to destroy the whole thing. He decided the best way to fix it was first to clothe Adam and Eve, to make sure that a child, a son is born, and from that line, he said, you know what? The only person that can fix this is me. So he became a man like you and me. He endured just common life. He endured suffering, and he endured the death of a cross. Instead of wrath, our God chose sacrifice. And the beautiful thing about that to me is if God had destroyed the world after Adam and Eve's sin, he was totally entitled to do it, right? Absolutely entitled to do it. But even though he could have been angry and righteous, he decided another route was better. And he sacrificed himself for us. Friends, for the lustful and the wrathful, 
our God has wanted and has demonstrated throughout all of redemptive history that he died for enemies. He died for enemies that we may become not only his friends, but his children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even in our sin, you love us, but that you want us to change, of course. But nevertheless, we desperately need you to change. And even all of our best efforts here on this earth, there's still filthy rags. We're thankful that you call sinners into your presence and cover them with the blood of Jesus, that we appear before you robed in his righteousness, white as snow. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.